Good morning. So everyone's turned to John chapter 13. Found verse 1, okay? The first number after 13. <laughs> after the colon. Good. All right. So John 13, 1. Before I read it, uh, I want to ask you three, three or four questions here. In your own life, and do a, an honest evaluation of yourself, what are the criteria that you use as decisions for who you will or won't serve? Think of, think of this, you have a choice to serve somebody. What would be the criteria you would use if you would or wouldn't serve somebody? Another question I would ask is, are there certain jobs at work, school, um, within the family, or within friendships that you have that you just won't do? All right? You know what those jobs are, right? In the home, at work, and family. Uh, that's not for me, that's for so-and-so, right? How about uh, when you find yourselves in positions of authority? So you're, you're in leadership of some kind, whether it be again in the home, in the work, in a sports team, whatever. How do you view yourselves and treat others who are underneath you? And give yourself an honest report on these things. Regardless of how you answer these questions, today's message will be for you. And not for me. <laughs> Just kidding. Some of you don't know me. <laughs> it's more for me than probably anybody in here. So, Alright, with that in mind, let us stand and read John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to the God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash your feet, you will have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Well then, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, who is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you, or done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe, and I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. 
Jesus, we are thankful for your scripture today. As always, it's going to be very challenging to us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we take this seriously. And you give us a wonderful example of what it is to love and what it is to be humble and what it is to serve. And I pray, God, that myself included, that wherever we're at, Lord, that uh, if you have anything to say to us in this area of service as a Christian and a follower of you, that you would teach us now and guide us to become more like you in the way we live our lives out. In Christ's name, amen. As we end uh, chapter 12 and go into chapter 13, we begin to see a shift in the Jesus ministry. Um, he goes from a more public one amongst the crowds in Jerusalem to a more private one with solely his disciples. And it was necessary that he would do this and make that transition because his death was just around the corner. And um, these men were going to res assume responsibility for leading the church. They're only basically two months away from this job. And they're going to be responsible for the gospel message and evangelism and discipleship. With this reality around the corner, Jesus knew, though, that these men were not right, quite ready yet. There was more training that was going to be required for these guys. And there was truth, the truth was, there was one particular area in their lives in which they still had a lot of work to do. It has been an area in their life that he'd been teaching them for three years, yet they still failed to live it out in their lives. It was this area of servanthood, this need to learn what it was to love others through humility and self-sacrifice. And it was imperative, again, that they grasp this. Because again, when these guys are going to assume positions of leadership in the church in Jerusalem, and if they were going to be representatives of Jesus Christ, they were going to have to learn to view the world through his eyes and not the way the culture had influenced them. And Jesus was about to turn the disciples' world upside down through a powerful demonstration. So let's begin by reading verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. There's a few things we could talk about in this passage, but I really want to narrow it down to basically uh, one. And that was the time of year it was in Jerusalem. We notice here, it was just before the Passover feast. Um, and uh, give a description of Jesus going to leave this world. His hour is coming. In other words, he's going to be crucified. And he talks about his love for the disciples. But it's significant that it was a time of Passover because this, again, for those of you who may not be familiar, was the feast that celebrated God's deliverance of uh, Israelites out of Egypt from Egyptian slavery. And this is an annual celebration that the, the Jews celebrated in memory of this uh, uh, deliverance. But what was unique about this particular Passover was it's going to be the last one that the Jewish people were ever going to have to be required to follow. Right? Because Jesus, the true Passover lamb, was in their midst and he was 24 hours away from death. Now again, this, this is why for him it was a very unique Passover. He was going to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures be buying, be buying, be buying <laughs> by becoming the, most, uh, the, the true Passover lamb. And he was going to uh, fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and re uh, reduce the need or eliminate the need for the, the um, Old Testament sacrifices. It was a very unique Passover. And it's during this Passover that we see in verse 2 that these guys are having a meal together. It says, during supper. 
Now, while John doesn't make mention of this, the meal was likely the Last Supper that was mentioned in the other Gospels. And again, the reason why it was called the Last Supper was it was the final supper that was going to occur before Jesus' crucifixion. <coughs> and this is the meal. You'll remember, from, you'll remember this well. We do communion around this. This is the meal when Jesus says, take this uh, bread, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he passes on the wine. He says, take this cup. Uh, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the last supper in which he introduces this new covenant that people from that day forward would observe instead of the Passover. But John doesn't record this here in 13. He actually, instead, he chooses to focus on something different that happened that night. And we pick this up in three verse, uh, verses 3 through 5. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. If I were to ask you, when you read that, what images come to mind when you picture Jesus at the Last Supper and doing this event? Probably, uh, when you think of the Last Supper, if you, if you probably have Leonardo, not DiCaprio, what's the other guy's name? Da Vinci? <laughs> His uh, portrait. Probably better to have DiCaprio, because it might be more accurate. But this is... Uh, this is going to be, um, well, I'm going to turn this guy on. This is what we typically think of at the Last Supper. Something like this. Jesus with this a magnificent halo around his head, because that's how he was when he walked around town. He had this golden halo around his head. And all the disciples sitting around this rectangular table cramming in to see him. If you think that's the Last Supper, and that's the, the picture you have in mind when Jesus came up with the basin, you got the wrong picture. It likely looked more like this. In Jewish culture, men would lay down at the table and they would lay with their feet at one end and their heads from like close to one another. And, that's, and so you'd be virtually like, your head would be in the chest of another person and you'd go around this table. Now that's accurate in terms of what it would look like at a Jewish feast, but what the problem with this picture is, is the table's completely wrong. <laughs> that's like a little coffee table that, thir- that, that uh, 12 disciples and Jesus got around with 13 guys. That's not what it looked like. It looked more like this. It was a horseshoe. And again, they do a good job of portraying the table, but a bad job of showing what it would have looked like when they were there. They would have been laying down. You should do your own painting. I know. That's why DiCaprio would be better, because I could tell him what to do. You know what's hilarious about that comment? I spent at least 10 minutes online, and Google was just trying to find the right picture, and I couldn't get one. That just shows you how indoctrinated we are in terms of what we think the last supper looked like. Anyway, that's besides the point. Okay, so when you get I, want you get, I want you to get a visual of what they would have looked like around the table when Jesus got up to do this. But I want to first state the obvious. Why would Jesus have to do foot washing in the first place? Well, the climate, right? They didn't have uh, Under Armour shoes and Nike socks and whatnot like we do. They had sandals, and it was a hot, dry, dusty climate. And as you walked around, your toes were exposed, your feet were exposed, and so you'd get really, really dirty. And the dirt, the dirt and the dust and the heat would make your feet quite rank. So it was customary when a person came into the home that you would have a servant or a slave wash the guest's feet when they first entered the house. 
And then at that moment, then people would go and participate in the meal together. So when you're laying down beside one another, only thing you could smell was the food. Okay? Now, I know that may be obvious, but I want to get that out there. Um, just to say why there had to be a foot washing in the first place. But I want to introduce you to maybe some other things to think about to get you to picture the scene, to get the emotions and the sights and the sounds and the feelings of what have been like that day. And we pick them all, we pick virtually all of the observations up in three to five. The first thing I want you to notice is it's a private affair. Only Jesus and the disciples are there. Right in verse five, he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Um, there's only 13 people in this room. Why do I say that? There was no servant or slave there that night. There's nobody there to wash feet. So somebody would have to do it. There was only 13 choices. Jesus and the 12. But here's the key. None of the disciples stepped up to the plate, even though they had the Messiah in their midst. All 12 never even made an attempt to wash one another's feet. So Jesus' action by taking the role of a servant was like completely against the cultural and social norms. If anything, the disciples should have been washing his feet and not the other way around. So this was an astounding cultural... Um, uh, he broke the culture's um, barriers unbelievably, turned it upside down in his head, and did something that a man of his, in his position would never, never, never do. The second thing I want you to notice is the timing in which he washed them. And I've already highlighted this. Again, normally the guests would, be, uh, would wash their feet before supper, but here we learn that when the supper started, they already had started with sturdy and stinky, uh, dirty and stinky feet. Because verse 4 tells, uh, tells us that he got up from supper and laid out on his garments and did it then. So Jesus didn't wash their feet before supper. He washed it during supper. Again, uh, maybe, maybe he did this intentionally. Give them time to see if anyone would step up to the plate. Because Jesus had previously taught them about servanthood. And nobody stepped up. So again, the timing is very, very interesting. It would be a totally different, not totally different, but it would be a little bit different, I think, if he, Jesus washed his feet when they first entered the door. There's something significant about during supper. And again, Jesus had already taught these guys this. Uh, in Matthew 23.10, he actually told them prior, not too long before this, he says, do not, be called lead, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. These men knew that teaching, and nobody got off their, their sides and say butts off their sides and did anything. The third is Jesus dressed the part of the slave. It says there that um, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. Now, those of you who heard Peter's lecture to us uh, talked about what Jesus would have dressed like as a rabbi, the kind of clothing he would have wore, and the kind of things he would have had on his wrists and his head, and all the things that would distinguish him as a leader within Israel. According to Ben Witherington, uh, when he stripped down his outer garments into his undergarments, he said that that was to strip down to the Spartan attire of a slave. So this is him dressing in slave clothing when he is going to do this action. So he's physically taking on the part in terms of how he looked as well. But the fourth thing I find is very interesting is that, and it doesn't mention how long in here, this is just a, an observational that would be, would be accurate, although not stated, 
was how much time it would have took. See, I don't want you to have this in your head. Um, 12 guys, five minute job. Not a five minute job. If you were to thoroughly and do a good job of each person's feet, how much time do you think it would take per person? Two minutes? Three minutes? Right? Now you think about that. 12 men, two to three minutes apiece. This is a half an hour, maybe, maybe 40, 45 minute deal going on in that room. So he's washing feet for the entire time as long as I preach to you on a good day. <laughs> Today will be longer. All right. At least two minutes per foot. Two minutes per foot? Sure. So let's just say though, let's go, let's go small, two minutes. Let's just go four minutes. You're looking at anywhere from 30 to 30 minutes to an hour to do this process. This is no small job. This is a detailed thing. Okay. The fifth thing I want you to notice, and it's not recorded in this in this in, in uh, John, but it is in Luke. Um, the in the Last Supper in the in the book of Luke, an argument broke out that night at that meal about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Look at me with that Luke twenty two twenty four. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one whom serves. Now, I can't prove this in any, in any uh, way. So don't, uh, if you challenge me in the uh, uh, dialogue, I'm not going to fight you um, or try to defend myself. But imagine this. Wouldn't it be just like Jesus? If during that fight of who was the greatest, at that moment, Jesus stands up, leaves the table, starts stripping down in his tire, and gets ready to wash the feet. I highly doubt that argument broke out after he did that event. <laughs> right? Very unlikely. And can you imagine that, being there, while fighting over who's the greatest disciple, the one who actually, in your midst, was the greatest, as evidenced by his authority and his teaching, power over the demonic world, power over nature, power over sickness, ability to fight disease and have victory over it, ability to bring the blind uh, into sight, producing life from death, gets up from the table, quietly walks away, and returns to the table, taking the lowest position possible in Jewish society. And the last thing I want to mention to help you picture the scene is the atmosphere in the room that day, if you're not already getting a feel for it now. When Jesus began going around the room, you'll notice in verses 3 through 5, there is no record of a word being spoken by any of the disciples. Not a word recorded. I'm not saying there wasn't a word recorded, but it doesn't seem like there's any word recorded. It comes to Nathaniel, not a word. It comes to Philip, not a word. It goes to John, not a word. It goes to Andrew, not a word. Bartholomew, Thomas, nothing, nothing, dead silence. 20, 30, 40 minutes, dead silence. Until he comes to Peter. And good old Peter breaks the silence in verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You know, Peter was alarmed by Jesus' actions, and rightly so. 
he realized how incongruous this was, that it hadn't been too long ago because when someone asked Peter, who do you, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah, you got that right. In verse 6, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? You got that right. He was the Christ. He was Messiah. He was the Lord. So for Peter, it was unthinkable to think that his Lord and teacher should ever lower himself to engage in a task that only slaves performed in. And as a result of this, he couldn't keep his emotions back due to the shocking nature of what Jesus was doing. But the problem for Peter was all he could focus on was the literal act of the washing of the feet, but he missed the significance of why Jesus was doing this. There was a symbolic nature to why Jesus was doing this. You see, in the Old Testament, water is often used as a picture of spiritual cleansing. Do you remember in John 3 when Nicodemus came up to him and he says, uh, what do, what do I like, you know, and he says, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, like, you're not part of the kingdom yet. And they get in this discussion about being born again. And Jesus says to him, unless you are born with water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, I remember doing that sermon with you guys and I talked to them about, that was not about a, pic, a picture of baptism. It wasn't saying, unless you're baptized and unless you're born of the spirit, you're not going to enter the kingdom. The spirit was a the water was representative of Old Testament cleansing. It was a symbolic action. So when Jesus comes to him, he says, Peter, do you realize you need spiritual cleansing? And he was, it was a symbolic thing to say, not by water, little Peter, it's going to be by blood. It'll be through my blood. See, for, that, for Jesus at that moment, the washing of the feet was not just to teach them a lesson in humility and self-sacrifice, to teach them, though, that the presence of sin in Peter and the disciples' life was there. And there was a necessity for Jesus to cleanse them by voluntarily laying down his life on the cross. Now, while Jesus understood the symbolism he was doing behind the action, Peter had no clue. And that's why Jesus then turns to him in verse 7 and says this. Um, what I do to you now, you will, or sorry, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Right? So again, it's not about the literal washing of the feet. Peter understood what was going on and thought this is incongruous. Jesus says, no, there's more to this than you think, Peter, but you'll get it later on. You'll get it later on. The cool thing is, we see Peter later on getting it right. You see him in the book of Acts, preaching Jesus Christ crucified as the role of the Messiah, and people turning to him and turning to Christ in the thousands. And then we see in the book of First Peter and Second Peter, Peter writing the truths about the atonement and about the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. I, I looked up a few. I want to give you a beautiful picture here. This is the guy saying, never will you wash my feet. Look what he says in First Peter 18. He says, for you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So again, when Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing now, but you'll understand later. A beautiful picture of Peter understanding this later on in the future. But at this point, again, he's got no clue what Jesus is talking about. So once again, in verse 8, he responds to Jesus, but this time with a more aggressive tone. He says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
See, again, because the washing of the feet was symbolic of cleansing of sin, if Peter refused to allow Jesus to do it, Peter was in essence denying the very purpose for why Jesus came. And to deny the washing was to deny the mission of Jesus. And to deny the mission of Jesus was to deny the need for the cross and the reality of the Lord's humiliation. And that's why he said, if you do not wash, you will have no part of me. And Peter responds to him in verse 9 this way, Well, Lord, if that's the case, then wash not only my feet, but also my my hands and my head as well. You know, when we read Peter's answer there, at least I do, I want to make fun of him, going, man, you're one thick, one thick dude. You don't just get it, do you? But in fairness, many of us in here have Peter personalities. And if we're honest with ourselves, we wouldn't have clued in either. <laughs> We'd have been in the same boat. But here's what I love about Peter's response. He can't miss this. Though he missed the point of what Jesus was talking about, the key was this. Whatever Jesus was offering, Peter wanted all of it. Right? He didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but as soon as Jesus said, if you don't allow me to do this, just the feet alone, you'll have no part of me. And Peter's like, not a chance, Lord. If, it's, if it means I can't have any part of you, then do my whole body. The guy was fully in with Jesus Christ. He wanted to miss nothing of what Jesus had to offer. And I think that's what's beautiful about Peter as well. He kind of had a, a quick mouth, but he also had an awesome heart for God. Again, though, because Peter didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about, Jesus then had to correct his thinking. Pick that up in verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. What Jesus was saying to Peter was this. Peter, there's no excess required here. There's no excess required. You've already lined up with me. You've identified with me. You've been washed by me. There's no need for any supplemental washing here, Peter. You're good. You're clean. And your, your sins are forgiven. And in fact, all of you are here, including the disciples, except Judas. Judas is the only one that's not in that camp. Again, obviously, Jesus is talking about the spiritual cleanliness of Peter and the disciples here. So Jesus, after performing this act and having this dialogue with Peter, in verse 12 then, goes back to the table to join them. It says, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said again to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also um, should do as I did to you. Jesus wanted to teach these guys a massive lesson here. And the lesson that was going to impact the rest of their lives. And the problem, again, like I mentioned in the introduction, these men had missed so much of Jesus' teachings throughout the three years of ministry. <coughs> And they struggled with big pride and huge amounts of arrogance and even some racism at times. They'd fallen into the, the cultural trap that they had lived in. And social status was really important to them. They loved authority and power and sought after it. 
And they loved what they thought they could stood to gain with Jesus Christ. I mean, we saw this at the Last Supper, having an argument the night before his crucifixion about who's the greatest, three years into the ministry. In Mark 10, 37, two disciples come to Jesus with a request. And he says, and they, say, and they say to Jesus, don't refuse me when I ask for you this request. And Jesus says, let me hear it. And they say, when you come to take your throne as king, and, and, and when you come in your kingdom, promise us that we can sit on your left and your right. <laughs> in other words, if you're the king, I want the two biggest positions of authority next to you. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Because <laughs> ultimately, it's going to be a suffering Messiah. Mark 9.38, disciple comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. In other words, he's not important like we are. We're the top 12 guys. How dare anybody else in your name try to do anything in the name of God? Luke 9.54, when they see the Samaritans, they want to call down lightning to strike them. They want to execute the Samaritans in, in their presence, and they want to get rid of these people. Listen, these disciples are not these uh, amazing men that we often portray them to be. They're very much like us in their attitudes. And Jesus knew this. But at the same time, even though he knew they were prideful and they were full of arrogance, he also knew that they recognized him as a man of great significance. And according to them, he was someone worthy of praise. That's why he says to them in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. But what the disciples failed to realize that was there were implications for him being Lord and teacher in their lives. There were implications. And this was, and this was the implication that Jesus was teaching them. No act of service was beneath them. No act of service was ever to be beneath them. And there was going to be a need in their lives to readily perform the lowliest of service for one another. Didn't matter what positions they held, where they were in the social hierarchy, what status others gave to them, whatever status, whatever status Jesus gave to them in terms of leading the church. Uh, they were had to be willing to humble themselves to do the most menial jobs in order to demonstrate love towards another person. And this is why Jesus' demonstration before them was so powerful. I love it when he says, you are right when you call me teacher and Lord. Because what Jesus is saying is this, look at me as teacher and Lord. And the acts that I did, did not diminish me in any way. I'm not less of a teacher, I'm not less of a Lord when I did this kind of service and took a role of a slave. There was no diminishment in my character, my identity, who I am because I did this menial job. It was an absolutely brilliant um, demonstration by God to get his point across. So Jesus then further illustrates his point by speaking to him again in verse 16. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Again, Jesus is flipping the whole social context of these guys on its head and turning the whole thing upside down. He's giving himself as an example so the disciples could grasp this concept. 
And if Jesus as God was willing to take the duties of the lowest position on the totem pole, then, they, then these men surely could as well. So, so for them to be followers of Jesus was to embrace the, the highest positions of servanthood. They were as followers that to embrace the highest positions in servanthood. And again, not just thinking about servant, like I'm just going to like, man, that'd be a good idea if I did this, and I can see that, I should think about doing that. He says, actually, you need to do them. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're not blessed if you think about them, and you see them and ignore them. You're blessed if you actually do them. (laughs) You have to do them. And that's when the blessing comes in. I want to finish my sermon with this thought before we go to lessons. You might have wondered why I skipped out all the verses in Judas. Didn't talk about verse 2. Didn't talk about verse 11. Haven't talked about verse 18. In verse 2, he's described as one who's going to betray Jesus. In verse 11, he's described as someone who's not a follower of Christ. In verse 18, he's described as someone who's lifted up his heel against him. In other words, he's turned his back on him. He's, he's, he's basically said, like, I'm done with you. But I don't want anything to do with you. Go back to the supper table that night. Go back to the supper table that night. As he goes around the table, he's washing the feet. And he goes to Nathaniel, Thomas, Philip, Andrew. He comes to Judas. What does he do? Doesn't skip him. He washes the enemy's feet. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? G- Judas was part of that ceremony that night. Jesus was not only demonstrating the need to take low positions in service for one who they loved, he was saying you do the same for your enemies as well. And D.A. Carson, quotes this really well when he relates to verse 2. Listen to, listen to this. It's so good. This is why you, you read theologians sometimes because they can say things better than, than I can. He says, With such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes the feet of his disciples, including the feet of his betrayer. Isn't that good? With that thought in mind, let's head to the lessons. And here's what I think we should take away from this passage. The first lesson is this. To be a follower of Jesus is to embrace servanthood as a way of life. In our social context, such as work, neighborhoods, families, sports teams, um, friendships, we all have a way of, of evaluating how we fit in amongst those people. And be honest with yourselves. Be honest. Don't you often think, hmm, at this moment I kind of feel like I'm better than so-and-so. You know, when it comes to intelligence, athletic abilities, like whatever, sporting abilities, kind of like ahead of that person. So you kind of think, okay, I have a certain position or status that would mean that they should actually view me in a better light 
and I can look down on them. And often, we figure out, though, in some context, when we feel that we're inferior to people, we actually figure out what it would take to fit into the next category. If I only were this, if I only were that, if I were only this, then I could become this. Or, we would look at people, we think, man, what would it take if I tanked in a certain area to stoop to that, that, that inferiority? Right? So here I am, I, I look at myself and I think, man, like I'm pretty good right now. Oh boy, if I lost this and that and the other, then I'd end up being like that person. Again, this is all difficult to work through, but it's a reality that we all have to face. Again, when we want to be a follower of Jesus and to embrace servanthood as a way of life, we have to ignore the flesh that screams those things. And we have to look for a way of serving people, whether they're inferior or superior to us in terms of the way we deem them. That's why in verse 15, Jesus says, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. This is this you you want to like play this social context game where you this inferior superiority thing. I am the most superior being ever to live, and I'm doing the most menial job. Look at me if you want to learn how to do life as a servant. That's why it says in verse 17: If you know these things, you are blessed. If you do them, you do them. In these contexts, we look for ways to be servants. Second lesson. As followers of Christ, our servanthood needs to extend to those who are even our enemies. <laughs> Judas is unbelievable. Right? That neighbor that just drives us crazy. That doesn't deserve anything from us because we're superior to them. And I'll prove I'm superior to them. And you list it off. But that person at work who drives you crazy, who's just a battle axe, and you, and you are their boss. I ain't treating them with a pile of beans. They do not deserve it. Listen, Jesus Christ washed the feet of someone who's going to betray him. If you've ever been feel betrayed at work, or anything like that, and you say, yeah, but Jesus, you don't know how I feel. He's like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. For I gave you as an example that you should also do as I did to you. Another area that we might miss sometimes, and I'm not saying this is a permanent thing, but oftentimes our spouse can become the enemy in the home. They might, they, we might feel unloved by them. We might feel betrayed by them for periods of time. And everything in our flesh says, I ain't serving that person. They don't deserve it. Listen, if Jesus can wash the feet of a betraying Judas, we can step up in our roles as husbands and wives and serve our spouses in the areas that we're called to do because Jesus gave us an example. Lesson three. Menial tasks are not below the dignity of those who are followers of Jesus. Of Jesus. <coughs> menial tasks are not below the dignity of those who are followers of Jesus. So what are the menial tasks around your home? Work. Neighborhood. Sports teams. School. What are the menial tasks that you deliberately avoided because you know they're there? Because they're for someone else to do. <laughs> and you refuse to do them because you're better than that. That job's for that person. That's not for me. Right? 
Work, think of it in the area of work. Especially prevalent when you're the boss. This is my role, these are my tasks. Everything else that's inferior in my head belongs to everybody else to do. Jesus says to you, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. How about sports teams? We know the difference between the captain and the bench warmer, don't we? How many times as captain would you ever do anything or treat the bench warmer the same way as the next best player to you? Or maybe there's some certain tasks that the bench warmer is doing and you just as the captain or someone in leadership in the team just avoid because that's for them. Until they get better at sports, they deserve to be in that role. How about again in the home? Husbands, you know this. Your wives have certain jobs they need to do. They're jobs that you'll never touch. Really? Jesus says to us as husbands, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I think the Lord got me good on Friday. Uh, it was awesome. I was at the uh, field house, and um, Jackson had a birthday party, and uh, this Christian family throws his party. And then those of you who in the field house and all the rooms that are there for parties and whatnot. And I'm the only one in the, in the building, basically, because it's a very quiet afternoon. I'm sitting in the lobby where the cafeteria is by myself, studying this passage. Okay. The birthday ends. All the parents leave. With, leave the, 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 child's, like the child at the birthday. All the parents left, and the parents of the birthday party we're left with the balloons, the tables, the chairs, the food, etc. I get Jackson, I say, Jackson, time to go, honey. I pack up my bags, I put the bag on the chair. He comes out and I'm just about to walk out and I go, what in the world are you doing? Are you like an idiot? Like, did you just miss? So I'm like, okay, I can't not go back there because that's immediate. Well, first of all, this, this is what's going through my flesh, ready? It's not my birthday party. I do my own birthday parties for my kids, and when people come to my house, I'm usually, me and Janice are the ones cleaning it up. So, I mean, this is just what it is to be a parent. Like, you know, that's tough on you guys, right? That's what's going through my head, to be honest, right? Oh, there's enough parents there, they'll probably just pitch in and help out, and if they know, like, if enough guys do their job, it'll all work out and they'll be okay and so on and so forth. Or they've got a cleaning staff. That's what the people here do. Like they pay the 100 bucks for the hour, so the staff will clean it up and that's their job. And go on and on in my head. Put my bag down, I say, Jackson, we gotta wait a minute. I walk in the room and I say, can I help you in any way clean up? <laughs> right? Can I help you in any way clean up? <clears throat> Shame on me though, if, if I wasn't studying that passage that afternoon, I probably would have walked out. Because I'm not thinking like Jesus is thinking. I'm not thinking like him. And it was just a real kick in the, you know what? Because of an A, ends in an S. <laughs> right? To wake up. Wake up. The menial tasks are not below my dignity when I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. One last story, because stories are powerful. There was a fellow named Cliff, and I, when I used to play the, I used to play the worship team of E Free Church, and I was on every two weeks, and I played the fiddle, um, whatever. So I'm up there every two weeks, and uh, you know, it kind of had like a prominent position, like uh, in terms of consistency, on the worship team. Every Saturday morning, I'd watch this guy named Cliff. He'd be putting out chairs in the sanctuary because they were they were they were empty because of Friday night youth and stuff. And uh, 
there's like 400 or is it 300? You guys would know who worked in the property committee, Jeff and Pat, maybe. There must have been 300 chairs in that building. And there's, there's groups of like, you know, maybe two, two guys putting them all out. So I'm watching Cliff do this and I walk past him and we have a conversation. And he says to me, I said, oh, I said, hi, we exchanged conversations. And then I can't remember how it all went, but he said something like this, you know, Andrew, uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, the Lord's basically proud of you because of the way you're serving him in this, in this church and that you have a really high position like of influence and authority. And I looked at him and I said, do you think so? I said, I think it's the opposite way around. I said, actually, you're the one that actually would probably receive more honor than I would. I said, why do you think that your job's any less than mine? He goes, well, I'm just putting out chairs. I said, yeah, but I'm just playing music. And like, I get like, you know, like, who cares? What's the difference? In his mind, he put me elevated status because I'm up front leading the church. Well, I'm not leading, but I'm part of leadership. And I'm just this menial guy. And I said, don't ever like think that God's looking any less down upon you for the work you're doing in this church. But he had it in his head like the disciples, their social status. I'm just a janitor kind of guy putting out chairs and you're leading up front. And he had it wrong. He had it wrong. He was just as equal, if not greater, than I was in that service. But again, um, if, I, if I'd known the scriptures the way I do now, I would have taught them in John 13. <laughs> so in Genesis House, in Genesis House, that I thank you people who serve with the kids, especially those of you who don't have children. Do I think kids are menial? Do I think they're like less important? No, of course we don't. We love our children, but the way we treat them in terms of spiritual significance in churches, they're, let's be honest, they're less. We view them as less. I mean, honestly, if you go to, what was your, what's your preference? Do you want to sit here and listen to me, or do you want to go down and take care of the kids for an hour? Let's be honest. You don't want to go downstairs. I don't want to go downstairs. But Jesus says, again, that's a menial job that I would do. I would do. And I'm not trying to plug you guys to make you go downstairs. I'm just saying I thank you for those of you who don't have children and still are willing to take care of other people's kids. You make the Lord proud in that service. Even in the kitchen when we clean up after church. I mean, honestly... This is especially true for those of us in leadership. If you're an elder or, or you know, you, you're, the, you know, you're the pastor or whatever, you have a position of authority. My job is to teach and evangelize and do discipleship and blah, blah, blah. My job is not to put away the dishes at the end of the day. Really? Jesus says, for I gave you as an example that all you should do as I did to you. Listen, true leadership is through servanthood. And no job from cleaning this house to serving with the children, to serving your neighbor, to serving people at work, to serving your husband and wife is beneath us as followers of Jesus Christ.